Miss the beat, lose the rhythm. Van Halen once warned on their song Right Now. Uh, was that a warning? I don't know if it was a warning. Caution? Were they cautioning? What were they doing? It was more of a, uh, an observation about missing the beat and losing the rhythm. I don't think it was a warning. Who's writing this stuff? Well, my guest today, he never misses the beat, so he never loses the rhythm. You've been warned. In fact, the last time I saw him play live, I remember thinking, he is the rhythm. I know you don't know who it is, but you get the idea. He's a drummer, right? What, you were thinking he played the French horn? No, that's kind of weird. He's a drummer, but not just any drummer. This guy is a virtuoso, and I'm excited he's here. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Dreams of things to tap on the page. The stories to create for the stage. And memories and images passing through by by. Inventions that will change the world. The treasure chest of dads and girls. I see it all so clearly in my reverie. And perfect paintings with my steady hand. You can't change the path of a daydream man. of my guest today on the program, Adam Topol. Let me tell you a little bit about Adam Topol. All right, so Adam Topol doesn't sit behind a drum kit the size of Alex Van Halen's or Chad Smith's, but he's equally as mighty. Topol reminds me of Charlie Watts in the sense that he just kind of sits in the pocket and holds it all down. And like Watts, his style looks super laid back, but looks are deceptive because Laid-back appearance aside, big work is getting done. Topol is a subtle player who's inventive, tasteful, and intuitive. And he plays with a blend of finesse and muscle. The fact is, he's one of the best drummers on the planet. Now, subtlety aside, the late Tahoe-born Topol was reared on punk rock. And his teenage years were spent listening to bands like Black Flag and The Adolescents. Now, the young drummer may have pounded away on his kit to the loud stuff, but he was equally smitten by the quieter stuff, like the music of Cat Stevens. Educated at USC and the Berklee College of Music, Topol's formal education quickly gave way to knowledge that can only come from outside of a university campus. In other words, real life. And in his real life, Topol soaked the world up. A fan of jazz and Afro-Cuban percussion, Topol spent time in Cuba studying the discipline of drums. Although Topol might be best known as the longtime drummer for Jack Johnson, he sat behind the kit for Alana Davis, Ziggy Marley, 
David Gilmore, and Jimmy Cliff. By the way, this is just a partial list of the things he's done because he's done a lot. He's played in a band with Joey Santiago of the Pixies, been a part of the Culver City Dub Collective, put out great solo albums like 2019's Quando, an album, by the way, which reveals he's an amazing singer-songwriter as well. It seems as if there's nothing Adam Topol can't do. Adam is a practitioner who plays with a fine-drawn precision, rhythmic smarts, and musical intuition. He's a fabulous player and a very cool guy. So let's meet him. Here's me and Adam Topol having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Freelancing is so funny, man. If you're working for somebody, you have a whole set of tasks and an itinerary and, and a punch list of things you need to do for another person. And your day is your time is your time is laid out, but <clears throat> if it's up to you, there's so many things that can that can kind of pop up or go one way or another. So in short, it's been it's been a really great day, but busy. I've got all these deadlines happening. You know, before the show started, you and I were talking about home studios and crafting all your work from that space. Have you turned what you were saying was once a makeshift studio space into something more tangible or more uh, more high level? It's it's moving out of the makeshift realm, but like the process of getting a workspace happening is challenging. Like I just want to sit down and have a, a clean, awesome, comfortable space with a, with a computer and plugins and preamps and everything just working tip top, the right cables, the right stuff. And I could just sit down and be creative, you know, but, uh, it doesn't work like that. You know, there's so many little details that, that, that I've had to kind of address to get a to get a studio going that the way I like it and it, that's comfortable and it flows right so it's a long process but it's been fun it's almost done I pretty much upgraded my studio and, and it's great now what was the biggest snag snag not so much a snag well I think the challenge is if you live in Los Angeles especially on the west side space is at a premium. So my case, because I'm a drummer, I've got a lot of drums and a lot of stuff that I've accumulated from being on the road and, and liking to have different sounds and different, different sound palettes. So just finding places to put stuff and having a space organized. And then since I'm, my thing is recording acoustic, I'm recording acoustic drums. I mean, you're striking a membrane with your hand or a stick or you're shaking or you're rattling. And so how the sound, how the room sounds is really important, you know, uh, uh, if, if, if you don't have the things like bass traps and sound treatments and curtains and the right, you know, you're, you're not going to sound right. You could have the most expensive ribbon mics and the nicest preamps and gear, but if the room sounds weird, there's going to be something off with your recording. So my case, it's getting sound baffles and hanging them right. And, 
and having places to put stuff and getting getting it getting a room acoustically sounding correct even even having power like in my case I have a converted garage and so even getting like there's like 18 plugged in things going to one circuit breaker so even in the matter of like addressing those problems you know there's a lot that goes into getting a space where you can just turn on the lights and start going but at the end result is so worth it i'm so lucky to have a to have a space to work you know what man for years i just had i shared a, a rehearsal room with a bunch of other guys and recording was out of the question there'd be a band you know a weekend an awesome weekend band just smoking a gang of weed and playing cinnamon girl over and over and the walls were thin and there's just no way you know yeah you just hope they're not rocking so you can go in there and try to write something or create something and you know living in apartments where there's no way you can play you know and i've, I've experienced that for most of my time in los angeles so having having a space at all is a blessing but you know getting well, it getting it right that's a whole other thing yeah, and, and saying to to somebody who's not musical, saying, "Oh, I'm trying to make the room sound not weird," but that actually is a scientific thing that you got to figure out on your end. Yeah, well, especially especially if you're tracking drums, you know, because the, some of the coolest rooms, like uh, you could track drums in a cement room if you wanted to sound, and it would sound great. It would sound like Tony Thompson, like "Let's Dance" beat. You, you'd get it. You know, but then if you want like a really dry, funky sound, you'd have to put carpets on the wall. So all those things, I didn't, I don't want to think about those things at all. I just want to play drums. But what's happened is that um, with studio budgets and, and record budgets and the economy and the economics of music changing, I've noticed that all my artist friends and myself included, we've been thrust into the position of not only being responsible to be able to play our instrument, but we're also having to learn how to engineer, you know, which is a, a, its own science. We're having to learn about computers to run, you know, to run that. We're having to learn about acoustic engineering and, and maintaining a studio. And then we're booking our own tours and then we're, we're promoting ourselves. There was a whole infrastructure that was in place for artists that because the budgets have shrunk, you know, I think artists, the good part is that I can take my record and put it right beside in the same platform as anybody. She's Springsteen or Madonna, you know, they're, you know, they're in iTunes and I'm in iTunes and they're there on all the streaming platforms. And so am I. So that's really cool. But then, the, but then, you know, we have to learn all these things that we never thought we'd have to do, you know, to, to be competitive and vital in this new day and age, you know, people, dude, people will send me an MP3 of that and I'll have to just put it on, I'll put it in a computer, I'll listen to their song, it's, it doesn't have drums, and then I'll put a click track up and then I'll mic up my own drum kit, try to make it sound right, try to make it, the mic's not out of phase in the room and, and, and track something on top of it and never having met the person and hope it, sounds like we're making art together it's it's fun and it's interesting but it's it's challenging you know i never thought i'd have to do that stuff and i and uh well or i'd get to and i i get to do that now 
Well, how are you with the idea of working from home? Like, is that is that something that you think is because you, you, you have to sort of distinguish from your home being your sanctuary and also your workplace? Dude, it's so funny. I mean, I would throw the same question at you. You've done some really great work, you know. The best, one of the best things about this era of iPhones and and technology are the podcasts. I love them. I love them. So how would you, how do you balance, you know, talking to, talking to all these people, getting into the, getting into, you know, biographical storytelling in in your own space? You know, how do you, how do you juggle that? Give me some tips, man. So I... I keep it all in one room so that, so it's sort of like the isolated, which sounds like what you're doing as well. So like that, the room where, where I record, which is right here is the office, which has little to do with the rest of the house. Mm-hmm. So it's like, a, that's it's great. like an annexed kind of place. And that's the same thing. You know, my garage is the same thing. Luckily, you know, uh, you know, I live with someone who's really supportive and she's just like, you've got your studio Maybe we'll put some Christmas tree ornaments in that one corner, but I respect your space. Go ahead and cram it with your drums and your stuff. And I'm lucky to have that space. And so mostly it's a place where I can go and get work done. If you live close to your house, though, um, I battle with distraction anyway. So if I'm close to my living space, you know, chances are a dog might need to get walked (laughs) or something needs to go to a dry cleaner or where's the hammer, you know, something, cat box, whatever it, there's a million distractions. And, and, and I think I not only battle with that, but living in LA, all my friends who are writers and artists, we all talk about, you know, you know, just being able to sit down and focus and work without, without other things distracting us, you know? So, I mean, there's yeah. also distractions from the outside world. I got on the phone with uh, Shavo from System of a Down, and the fucking mm-hmm. leaf blower guy from outside suddenly decided to blow leaves. There it is. <laughs> all that. All that. All that stuff. Yeah. Totally. You know? Um, it, it's all, especially if you live in a city. I really admire people that that can that just move away. You know, fuck it. I'm going to Ojai. You know, I'm going out, you know, I'm going to go live in Joshua Tree. I don't need the distractions and the stimulations of a city. It's a lot to be said for that. You know, I can see why people do it. The quest for solitude. I mean, you know, you, you talk about the sound of a room and I, I had the pleasure of seeing you a couple of weeks ago at the Hotel Utah, which is probably no bigger than my living room. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, and it was amazing to watch you. You were you reminded me you were as smooth as like Roger Federer. It was like it was effortless oh, wow. for you. And you were filling that room with so much sound. Thank you. That means a lot, especially given some of the other people you've spoken to that that means a lot. You know, I run into a problem. I ran into problems in the past and that I, I studied. I was in an autodidact and I studied with uh, some teachers that were more jazz or classically oriented. So they would have you sit there using the minimal effort, getting the maximum sound out of the minimal effort. And so I've, I've been lucky to never have problems with, with like a carpal tunnel or whatever, but it just doesn't look like I'm doing much back there. And so as opposed to like some of the greats who like the, the Krupas and the, and the, um, Keith Moons, where they're really animated, 
You know, it almost with this whole economy of motion that I that I that I learned for whatever reason, I've looked at I don't even I don't even go by what people are saying. I've looked at movies of myself playing. and I'm like, oh, it just looks like I'm like I'm sitting there. But I swear <laughs> to God, I'm not, man. I'm tr I'm really trying. I'm trying back there. But it was cool learning from jazz people how to get a sound. Again, we were talking about a drum is an interesting instrument, like with the guitar. Uh, especially electric guitar, they've got pickups, it's electronic. They are strumming strings. It is a person doing something really unique and delicate and great, but it's coming through an amplifier and effects pedals, and the voice is coming, is being processed through electronics. You can turn that volume up, but with drumming, you're literally striking a membrane stretched across a wooden, a wooden um, drum with a stick or with your hand and, and the sound is coming that way. So it's another science completely in the, in the acoustics and all that stuff. So it's, it's not, it's, it's a whole different science. It's really wacky, but thank you for saying that, man, because I want to, I don't know, man, I, I think I've wound up backing a lot of singer songwriters and that's really helped me trying to like, not be dull, but get into a side of song and, and get inside the song and support the band you're playing with. So thank you for saying that. Well, and is it is it a case where when you play a bigger venue, do you do you change your style or do you keep keep going with what you're doing? Well, you know what? On a good day, we hope that we can always just be just be natural and be be our relaxed, authentic self and and in every occasion, but with the, with the desire to entertain and bring it however you do. But, uh, you know, I can't help like sometimes like, yeah, it, it always depends. Like a bigger venue. If you're, if you're playing at, a, at, at, at the Greek theater, the Hollywood bowl or something, and it's during a really big moment of the show and you're backlit by some video screen and the crowd's going crazy. Yeah, man, I'm gonna do a full body flam at some point or something. You know, even in even, you know, even if the band is an acoustic kind of thing, sometimes that animation certainly helps. And sometimes that's not going to be appropriate uh, in a more intimate setting. You know, if it's a live thing, you have to kind of weigh it out. You know, so it's a, it's a that's a tough one. But I'm hoping like whenever, okay, whenever, in every case, I'm hoping that it's not the nerves or the environment, but it's more of like a creative decision based on what, what the music needs and what the people want. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And, and I, I think about Charlie Watts who, who plays stadiums and that guy fills the stadium and he looks, he looks like he's barely doing anything. Right? Yeah. He's one of my heroes, dude. Gosh, man. I mean – you hit it right in the head. You know, he swings super hard. Me and Merlo, bass player that I work with a lot, we both talk about him as sort of like a benchmark for certain kinds of drumming where, you know, some people would slag on Charlie, but I'd, I love him. He swings. He's a, he is a rock drummer. He plays traditional grip. He looks smart up there. And he's hitting, but he's not bashing. You know, it feels nice and it looks nice. You know, on the other hand, though, I, I have some friends that that are that really once they get up there, they they really 
put their back into it. And if it's their style, it works great. It's just, it, it all depends on the person. And, and the one, one of the best things about music and drumming and the physicality of drumming is everybody is going to do it a little bit differently. And everybody's sound is going to come out a little bit differently depending on their personality how they move their limbs, how they, how much they weigh, what they do, their vibe. That's the wonderful thing about it. You know, it's unlike basketball or sprinting or something, you know, I think somebody could, could be just as vital if they're not, if their approach isn't as athletic and they're not as fast or they're, they're not as agile as others. Some people can still make incredibly great art, you know, on on a set of drums i've seen it time and time again you know my favorite drummers are not always the fastest or the most athletic you know well i mean i think about longevity you know like for for example with me with the podcast i always try to avoid getting sick because if, if my voice is gone the podcast doesn't happen and mm -hmm. i wonder for you are you protective of your hands do you think about that kind of stuff i do I totally do. Um, yeah. I mean, just even it's, it's the funniest thing because I've never I'm knocking on one, but I've so far my 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 career, I've never really missed a gig, especially a major gig. But I'll tell you what, man, when I'm climbing up on the roof to clean it off and I'm on a I'm on a ladder, <laughs> I'm just praying that not an Inspector Cluzo thing doesn't happen <laughs> right fall. And that's that's just a nightmare. You know, you don't want you don't want those things to happen. But yeah. And that includes, well, I've gotten sick, you know, I'm not, I don't always sleep the most. I don't eat, I don't always eat the healthiest. I've gotten sick. I was in, um, South America and I got, so I got this flu that was the worst flu I've ever had, but you know, you don't miss a show. You just tell all of your bandmates, like, stay away from me. Don't, you know, I don't want you to get this. And you just sweat it out in seclusion. That sucks, you know? So it could be better. You know, some people are taking chlorophyll drops and they're vegans and they don't drink coffee and they don't have a cigar once in a while and they don't eat sugar and they probably get the flu or sick a lot less than I do. But as a whole, I'm, I'm pretty decent. You know, I'll get on a treadmill or I'll stretch it out. And I certainly with technique, I, I'll sit down and and really look at how I'm moving and check out my motion and my tension and those things. You, those things are pretty good. You know, I, I care about those things. Yeah. I, I look at someone like Phil Collins, who I always loved as a drummer. I always thought he was fabulous. And the fact that he can't mm -hmm. play anymore is heartbreaking. I mean, that, that is yeah. just a heartbreaking thing. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's terrible. If you think of, I, you know, I just read, I heard a podcast with him. My friend Joe Wong has this really cool podcast called the trap set. I love it. Phil Collins was on there. Yeah. Oh, have you heard? Yeah. And, and he interviewed Phil Collins and, and then I, uh, I read his book and he's worked so much. I mean, just imagine if everybody wants you to play on their everything, like, you know, sounds to me like he had every opportunity the planet could afford him and, and he just works super hard and he puts his heart into it between singing and, and, and playing tip top speed, you know, I mean, that must take its toll. Same with Henley. I've heard he's, he's, uh, 
maybe got some physical stuff that he deals with after years and years of drumming and, and singing and, and I'm compassionate. I can see why, you know, and, and I don't even think those guys lived that hard. I just think they, they worked. They had a lot of opportunities to, to do some great gigs and they took all of them. And that's just, it's, um, it can take its toll. If you're playing in front of a lot of people and, and you're expected to deliver and, and I can imagine there would be some pressure, you know, and I imagine it would take its physical toll let alone just sitting on a plane. If you're flying to Europe or Australia or Japan, all that sitting and all that stuff, the road can wear you down, you know? Has your enthusiasm for travel, I mean, in terms of being on the road, has that changed you know, as you've gotten older and you've gotten engaged? Like, do, Does that make a difference in terms of your conception of, of being out there in the world? Oh, man, no way. I love it. I totally love it. And people think I'm nuts too. Whether it's, whether it's like a nice tour where you're being taken care of and, and there's somebody who's looking after you and, and the conditions are, are really great to like, I recently opened for my friend Donovan Frankenreiter like a couple years ago. And I just went with an acoustic guitar, just singing some songs. And we went to Europe and I, Donovan, Man, they don't even they'll they'll sleep in the sprinter van. They don't do they don't even do day rooms. They just eat at the venue. They work hard. And I went with them and did all that. And it was in Europe in the dead of winter. I mean, the only time we, our one day off in Berlin was at an Airbnb and there was no heat. It was freezing, dude. And I wound up and then the and then the dude that I got paired off with snore like a grizzly bear so i wound up sleeping in the kitchen of this in berlin in the winter and it i was like i texted a picture to my girl i'm like check it out man i'm sleeping in the kitchen on the kitchen floor but it was funny you know it was fun and i was like man i'm not in a cubicle nothing wrong with being in a cubicle i just hate an office environment and i was just like i'm out here exploring and seeing the world this is a gift man and then other times conditions are are great and then i feel grateful there that i get my own hotel room and and there's there's food and and people are being nice and gracious and i'm like that's a blessing too and so traveling is an opportunity i think at least for me to see some places and contribute simultaneously so i think mostly in the context of travel there's an air of excitement and and childlike wonder you know, it never gets old. Well, of course, it, I mean, there are certain times where if your luggage gets lost or you do get sick or, you know, it, it's there's some difficulties involved in the production or maybe there's a cha a challenging audience. Maybe the sound is crappy. That's uh, that's really tough because you're stuck out there and you're you you're in a situation where you can't just go home and go back the next day and try it again. You're there. You've burned the boats. Like, dude, we're in Champaign, Illinois, and this is a rough crowd. And how are we going to make this work? Or that was a rough gig. And you, you've got to go to the next place and figure it out and regroup and make the next night. Great. So sometimes it's, it's, it's definitely difficult, you know, um, it can be, but, but, but overall, 
it's a gift, man. I really think it's a gift to be able to make music and, and, and do it like professionally. discipline were you really good at sort of just getting down to business and working with your instrument for hours on end how how were you in terms of work ethic as a young guy 16 oh, 17 the worst the really? worst wow. man oh my god oh yeah i mean it was it's i mean it was fun like music the minute the minute somebody told me i had to practice or pulled out a metronome or 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 made it into anything other than like this is fun i'm with my friends or i'm playing along to a record or whatever the minute it got too serious i shied away from it you know i just uh it had to be just like water skiing or surfing or skateboarding just a fun it had to be fun and and the minute it got too serious i don't think 
I just wasn't that wasn't in me to to treat music like that back then. And I wish it was. You know, I remember I went to a conservatory to kind of audition to get in. I didn't know what it was and and I didn't know how to read, I didn't know how to hold the drumsticks, I didn't know what a snare drum etude was or anything like that. And I think I got some flack from that, you know. I I felt that they had kind of indicated, well, I know kids half your age that can do all this stuff and what's, you know, what you're going to have to learn this. You're going to have to get your shit together. And he was, he was right. And I, you know, but back then it just, I was just like, oh man, I'm going to go skateboard or whatever. It shouldn't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be serious like this, you know? And, uh, I'm sure it would have been better had I practiced. I have friends that, that were really focused and I didn't, I didn't get that till I was in my twenties. And then I did that, but only because I wanted to. And, and at that point I was curious, but as a kid, I just wanted to have fun, you know. Were were you listening to punk rock? Were you a hardcore guy? Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember, dude, the Ramones. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, they were. That was amazing. That was a major breakthrough for me and all my clove smoking weirdo friends in San Francisco. You know, we'd skateboard and we started that the whole punk new wave thing started happening, and there was this film called The Decline of Western Civilization, oh, yeah. and you know we were starting to get into all those bands. But at the same time, I would sneak a Cat Stevens record, you know, and then, and then we would sneak in, you know, the, you know, Marlon Ziggy and, and Bob and, and Toots and those things would kind of sneak into the picture too. And there was, it was such a really fun time. It was a magical time of when all those things first came into view. You know, I remember just seeing you two play, during their war tour, which just after they did boy. And I was just a little guy seeing him play with this band called the alarm. And oh, yeah. I was thinking, wow, there's some new things happening out there, you know? And that was, all those things were really fun and creative and formative. And just as, and I think too, a lot of, a lot of people I've admired musically, they would go off and paint or draw just as much as they would play their bass or guitar or drums. And I think that was my vibe too. And, and I'm sure I could, if I if I would have been in drum corps and really drum corps and focused, I'd play single strokes faster and I'd have better technique. But I'm sure there was a lot to the the skateboarding and and watercoloring and drawing aspect that I pursued when I was a kid that might have added something. I don't know. You were still, I mean, even though you weren't maybe practicing as much as you as you could have been, you still knew that was the direction you were going. I think so, but like, I don't know. I, I feel like I never thought like there's a thing about music where, and maybe the punk rock thing changed it, but like, I felt like for me, like Kiss or Led Zeppelin or the Beatles, or when I was really little, the Bee Gees or all those bands were just like these larger than life things that existed out there. I was from Reno or Lake Tahoe you know, and that that was like almost like a being like a movie star, like, you know, or Star Wars or something. They were it wasn't a it wasn't a world that I lived in. You know, I sort of felt like. Not that it wasn't an option, but it was like it was not even a thing. My mom, I couldn't even mentally comprehend the idea of being 
a professional drummer and have it be anything other than like maybe a local bar band or playing on a cruise ship. And those things didn't interest me. So my mind, I really just thought with art and music, like I just was going to do it for fun and it'd just be a fun thing. And I'd find something else to do to, to, to make rent. And that, that was really a belief system that I carried with me for years for years, but I still played, you know, I still did it, you know, through school. Like I didn't major in music. I was a lit major and then I graduated and I played in bands, but I sold ties and then I had different office jobs and, you know, taught special ed for a while, but I always gigged and played, but I was in my mind just sort of thought like, I'm not the kind of drummer that's ever going to play in a cruise ship or be in a bunch of cover bands no disrespect to those that do. I think it's great, but that just wasn't my vibe. And so it's just going to be a for fun and for free pursuit, you know. And but it's just sort of like, you know, as John Lennon says, life is what's happening when you're making other plans, you know. And I just sort of like morphed into going on the road and playing playing shows, I suppose. And did you feel you felt your discipline start to change in your 20s? You started to really get in the pocket. Yeah, for sure. Um, yes, I remember I, I, it, a lot of that stuff came from me when I when I when I like stopped partying. You know, there was there was definitely a time it wasn't like a breakdown necessarily. But I knew what the what I was doing and the way I was living was not authentic to who I was as a person, you know, in, in college. And I think music and specifically like like drumming and jazz and Latin percussion and stuff went hand in hand with me putting aside the guy that I was, you know, in terms of like how I was living, what I was doing. And I just remember like thinking to myself, oh, this was funny. My first conga teacher, his name's Roberto Miranda, and he he still teaches at USC Jazz Department. He's an incredible bass player and, and a conguero too. And I knew nothing about jazz history. And he said, I showed up to one of our lessons high. You know, I was in a band and and I was playing congas in the band too, you know, drums and congas. And and he, he I think he must have smelled the weed on me and he said to me, Man, you gotta stay away from drugs. He goes, you will never be a jazz musician if you do drugs. Like he was totally reformed. And, and I had never known the history of Miles Davis or Charlie Parker or most of those guys, Art Blakey, to, to say, what are you talking about? All those guys were using. I just thought he was right. And so I just quit everything and, and went deep into it because that's what I wanted to do. And, and by then it wasn't practice so much as it was just obsession, you know? It was it all of a sudden it became like going to Berkeley School of Music to learn from the jazz guys. And it was going to Havana, Cuba to go right to the source with with folkloric percussion and to take every possible band gig I could, you know, just say yes and do it all. And but that to me wasn't like focus practice. It was like if I wouldn't it was more like I had no choice if I wasn't pursuing music with that vigor. I was miserable. I felt like I was just, I hated my life, you know, versus when I was in it and galloping forward, I was, I just felt like I love this. This is, this makes me happy. And I think maybe that's what it is. 
you know, like if I'm like, if I'd rather be outside playing with my friends, but I should be, you know, but my piano teacher said, practice your piano scales. I don't think I would have had the discipline. I would have just gone out and played. It only took me just wanting to do those things. That was the play. That became the play, you know? I mean, I imagine if he had said that to you five years earlier, you might not have taken it seriously. Yeah, you're exactly right. I wouldn't have even wanted to play Latin percussion, you know? Right. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have. I just would have been like, well, I have a twin fin. Now I want a thruster surfboard instead. And that's, <laughs> they call it a day, you know? Right, right. It would have been totally different, you know? It's also funny because he was so wrong, even though what he was saying was really good and he was and it was great advice. But it was in, it was totally like you were saying, it was totally wrong. Those jazz guys. I, were out of their heads. No, no, I had no clue, you know, <laughs> none. I was just like, whatever he said was right. Boom. You know, I did it. And then he told me to quit smoking cigarettes. And I did that. You know, he said, you know, a good musician never smokes cigarettes. What? You know, I, <laughs> then I saw Elvin Jones play my favorite. Of, you know, this guy played drums on Love Supreme. We're talking. It was the most mind blowing performance. And I went to say hi to him afterwards. And he had a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And I, you know, it's, you know, it was very different. You know, as, as it turns out, you know, musicians are, and artists in general are very complicated people. I'm thinking that you just respected the hell out of that teacher. So he, he yeah. you know, I, mean, I think that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. You know what else, too? I, I, I think there was a part of me that, that intuitively knew that, that those things weren't options for me, you know? And that's the thing. I'm not, I'm certainly not speaking out against anybody, you know, doing anything, having some drinks or doing any kind of, any kind of thing that gets you loosened up or wanting to play or whatever. A lifestyle decision is so personal. I have friends that do party and they have such a solid relationship with it and it, and it interfaces really well within their lifestyle. And honest to God, I, I think that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't know what makes other people tick, but I wonder if people can't really know, people don't know, people can't really intuit what's good for each individual person. You know, for me, like my temperament is much more agreeable, maybe not clouding myself up so much, you know, that just works for me. You know, some people have a really fragile temperament and if they honor it, they're probably a lot better off. Yeah, and that's a great way to sort of say whatever works for you, do it. Because obviously, like someone like William Burroughs or oh uh, Bukowski, Bukowski, we could go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people. I mean, Keith Richards. There are people that, geez, Willie Nelson. Yeah, all, there's a long list of people that still are not like straight edge in the least bit, but you know, they they do their thing, and and there's it's you can't argue with the results. I just don't know, you know. A lot of the Latin musicians, most of them, you know, they'll they'll loosen up a lot. At least the people I hung out with in, in Cuba and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of the jazz legends, a lot of the rock legends that the creative space that people get themselves into. Is, it's it's I don't know, man, people people tick in all kinds of interesting ways. Well, from one lit major to another, uh, someone like Coleridge, who was smoking a ton of opium. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His output yeah. was okay. Sure. Sure. It, it goes on and on. So, so I don't know, man. I know. I don't know. It's, it just became, I think 
he was talking to what what that teacher was talking to me about and maybe what drew me to the folkloric rhythms and and a lot of that stuff too is maybe for me there was some kind of spiritual connection to music you and i were about the same age we grew up a couple hours apart uh in the same era i was i was one of two jewish kids in concord i'm from concord and the other jewish guy uh, I still know. I mean, it's so funny because there was we were not a, a diverse community in terms of of that at the time in the seventies. Mm-hmm. For you, I mean, growing up in Tahoe with a similar, I imagine the community there was not large. No, no way, man. It was a small blue collar <laughs> town, and yeah, yeah. I, I I've talked about this before with with friends and whatever. It's just, yeah, man, sticking out. Especially, you know, my dad came from straight up sheep's head bay brooklyn very jewish like the lachaim sign and the open open shirt with the wide collar like 70s jewish (laughs) vibes you know real you know real estate you know really good at business really dynamic so i definitely got thrown into that lot and i felt you know i felt different it was uh lake tahoe in the 70s was not a, a diverse place and and uh there were certainly times where I felt like I stuck out and I didn't want people to know or I didn't like getting singled out, you know, for whatever reason. When I went to school in the Bay Area, I went to a Catholic school just because it was, you know, locations and logistics and it was a good school. But I certainly had I struggled with finding my place in, in you know, as somebody with with a parent who was Jewish and, and being half Jewish, you know. But then later on too, it, it, as soon as I started like really studying up on on artists and musicians there's such a there's such a history of like the jewish community man the catskills were a raging place yeah. i'm sure they were you know and then i so many people out there that be it in the, especially in the comedy in the in the literature world but i mean geez buddy rich right i mean reading his life story you know there's a lot of that there and so i guess Another thing about music that's helped is just embracing who it is you are and, and, and finding authenticity with that. And, and my favorite comics, musicians, writers, artists, they all incorporate their identity into their music. You know, songwriters are great at that, too, you know, where they've they tapped into their they tap into their authenticity, their life experience, and they share with you. Whether there's a writer who's Dominican named Juno Diaz. Oh, yeah. He's, he's written some nice books. He, you know, maybe he's gotten to, to some trouble right recently or he's got some complicated things happening. But I was so taken with, with just, just when I read Elie Wiesel and read about the Holocaust and, and existentialism, I'd never heard about that before in high school. That, that book blew my mind. But maybe. His experience was and and hearing about the Trujillo regime and what those people went through and, and that form of storytelling and identifying not only storytelling but somebody's ethnic experience, those are deeply moving, you know? And so I I I can't I can't say enough about artists and entertainers sharing their own experiences and their own heritage with us in a way that's interesting and great. And that certainly is true for the Jewish community. You know, well, I was raised by by New York Jews, and and when I started doing comedy, which I started doing, you know, stand up when I was sixteen, it didn't last very long. But I was very self referential about being Jewish, and my mom was not comfortable with that. She said, "Don't yeah. people are gonna people are gonna come after you." 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and she was of that generation where there was like crazy anti-Semitism. You know, my, my dad used to talk about my dad, he's passed and, and it was just such a wonderful dude. But I just remember, you know, he got a nose job, you know, he had to really, it was hard for him like to, assimilating. And I know a lot of Jewish people like dealt with serious anti-Semitism and judgment. And there was, there was a lot of that stuff with our parents' generation. You know, I think the good thing about right now, one of the good things about this, this time is that there's a lot of awareness. There's a lot of active activism in any, in any group that's been disenfranchised or marginalized has a louder advocacy voice. That's cool. That's great. But but back then with our parents, it was just, just a different time and you kind of had to just blend in or you would just, you kind of, you kind of get knocked down a few pegs. You know, certainly, certainly my grandparents dealt with some things and certainly my dad did, you know. And so with you, in the case of the story that you told, I can understand, you know, my parents too. Well, my dad didn't care about that stuff, but I could understand a parent being really low key with that, especially in a town where there wasn't a Jewish community. Right. Did you ever explore Israeli music? I did. I did. Um, not in detail, but like, um, well, Israeli, like klezmer music, especially, I kind of got, I sort of fell into the wormhole there a little bit. There's um, the biggest, the one of the biggest things that that blew me away was there's a clarinet player named Don Byron. He's great, and he's one of my favorite modern jazz clarinetists. And he did a record. Um, and interestingly enough, he's a Black American uh, clarinet player. But he did a record of the music of Mickey Katz, and Mickey Katz was like straight up like uh, klezmer music, Catskills, like you know. And this is was a really it was a really interesting animated funny record of the music of Mickey Katz played by Don Byron and that opened up a door for me to get more into klezmer music and so I have to credit him as as um, as opening my eyes to that that really cool art form and you know to this day when I write stuff it's always in those minor harmonic scales that that I would hear in that music so I wonder if it's just not lying in my in my blood somewhere you know do you feel that i don't know if you watched the rhythmatist when we were when we were teenagers do you remember that movie when when copeland did that well, Stuart, yeah Stuart, yes i did i do do you, do you feel that like i mean metaphorically i get what that movie's about the idea that like the quest for that for that perfect beat or for the rhythm do you feel that something that that drumming like maybe like chess is something that you don't ever actually master that you're always in pursuit of, of a rhythm? Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And, and yeah, and hopefully it's, hopefully somebody always stays hungry and curious and, and vital, you know, Stuart Copeland, he's a great, uh, that's a great reference because man, I mean, to this day, he's out there telling his story and checking out new things and, and, and staying really curious. Yeah. I mean, I hope, I hope I'm never complacent. I hope I'm always curious and learning new things. You know, again, I, I, I refer to Afro-Cuban music because one of the things that fascinated me was that, that the, especially the folkloric musical community, 
there was such a premium on age and knowledge, you know, as opposed to youth and hipness. I mean, that stuff happens too, but like the guys that were the most revered were the people that knew the most songs and knew the most rhythms and had had generationally experienced the most, the, the widest breadth of players and, and, and a history of drumming and music and stuff. And that, that was really interesting to me, you know, a sense of like these people keep learning and growing and they, they, they have such a wide berth of knowledge within their discipline, you know, that that's a great thing, you know, and I, I hope I, I stay curious and, and again, keep that childlike wonder. Do you think that that percussion goes beyond just drums? Oh yeah, of course. So, I mean, if you think about hip hop, for example, God, the way those guys are putting their words together and the timing and the flow and the syncopation there, that's just, it's, it's deep. Um, if you look at a singer like Sinatra, the way he pauses and the where the syncopation, the where yeah. he places his notes and the feel and swing, which is a rhythmic concept. Swing goes way beyond a stick hitting a ride cymbal, you know? So if you put it in those terms, I would say absolutely, you know, syncopation, rhythmic thing goes way beyond striking a membrane with a stick or striking a membrane with your hand or a piece of wood or a shaker or something. Yes, for sure. Okay, so here's something I've always wondered, and you can finally put this to bed for me. I think about someone like Alex Van Halen, who I think mm-hmm. is a fantastic drummer. Why does mm-hmm. nobody else sound like him? Yeah, I think that's a great... Wow, that's a, that's an interesting thing. But him specifically, he's got a touch. He, he uses... It's a bunch of stuff. I mean, everybody... Everybody walks a little differently, you know. Everybody's body is a little bit differently. Everybody hears time a little bit differently. Everybody talks differently. In the case of him, he's really special. That's, I mean, he's in Van Halen, and he and his brother, they just play together the whole time. They created their sound together, you know. And then it just not knowing him at all and having never met him, but I do know he's used the same gear this whole time and gotten the same sound and really it seems like he's defended his sound very well you know he's and he's warded off any kind of like interference in terms of you know when different genres happen to be popular at that moment he didn't abandon his post it seems like he really stuck by what they did that incredible music that they made, you know, back in Pasadena, wherever they were back in the day, you know, doesn't seem like he deviated from his formula one bit. He and his brother and his band thought of this sound and they stuck there. And that's so that's a really cool example. I mean, if anything, there's, they doubled down, I think. I think he doubled down on that sound. Yep. Yep. It was pretty cool. I remember I was out at SIR um, picking up some symbols. The Zildjian office is out there. And I went and visited my friend Kirsten and, got this incredible bag of symbols, but I walk, I was walking by, I saw, and in one of the rehearsal spaces and it was Van Halen rehearsing, man. And I, I, I didn't go in there or anything, but I just stood outside and heard it. And just what you said, man, he, he just, he just had sounded exactly like that first record, just that sound, that pocket. And they were, they were amazing. The harmonies and all that stuff. And it was in a rehearsal room. So 
Yeah, man, that's 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 his sound, and thank thankfully he's preserved it. And a lot of lot of great musicians have done the same thing, including Charlie Watts. He uses the same type of drums. He he plays the same type of beats. It's the same songs. He's been playing with the same guys. They and people keep loving it. What is the criticism that people usually have? You alluded to earlier about, against Charlie Watts. Oh, you know he's not. Uh, he doesn't do solos. He doesn't do a lot of fills. Um, he's not a guy that's going to do incredibly technical things. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't hit as hard. Uh, it's a. It's a subtler thing. Um, so sometimes people might mistake like swing and putting some grease into a beat. They might mistake that for sounding like raggedy or whatever. People have different criterions. You know, someone like someone might be a John Bonham fanatic or a Ginger Baker fanatic, and those guys were very explosive, dynamic players who popped out a lot more and who might have been more on the grid, as they say, you know, whereas like uh, Charlie was, you know, I don't know, man. Charlie was like a, like a blues jazz drummer. He slid around and he had some grease on that. And so that was a different thing. So some people will recognize that as a cool and interesting thing. And other people just think like, that just sounds raggedy and minimal. I don't, he's not good. You know, he's not a show off. I don't think he is. Right. He's, he's very not solid. showing off. No. And, yeah. He's, but yet you never listen to a stone song and say, something's missing. No, nope, not at all. Not, not in the least bit, man. You're going to, um, if, well, it just sounds like the stones again, back to the whole Van Halen thing. Yeah, they sound like the Stones, and they're never they they're no one can do what he does, you know. Nobody can, and and they owe so much of their sound to him, and, and there's there's such a value in that. But you know, drummers drummers, I have tremendous respect for. Like I don't get it, you know. So yeah, it, yeah. I mean, and Charlie Watts is he is the perfect drummer for that band, whereas Ginger Baker would have been the wrong drummer for the Stones. Correct, and Charlie would not have worked out in Cream no. either. <laughs> no, they might have. They might have been some cool stuff. And I, 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 I've heard stories that maybe Keltner went in and did a few things for Charlie and some of the later recordings. I don't know. I'm, you know, but, but I guarantee. Well, let's see. Wasn't Charlie on all those recordings? But it was ninety nine percent of them. All those classic hits was Charlie Watson, and you can't argue. You can't. The proof is in the pudding. You know. Midnight Rambler, you know, Give Me Shelter, all those hits, you, you can't argue with those results. They're just so cool. Tell me what makes uh, Jack Johnson so special as a musician. Oh, God, that guy, man. He can do anything. I oh, mean, uh, it's it's humbling being around a guy like that, you know. Jeez, uh, I remember meeting him in 99 before we, we made Brushfire Fairy Tales, and he was just out of UCSB. And he pulled up to my little rehearsal room in an old beater car with an amp where only one of the speakers worked and an acoustic guitar that is, I think he had gotten, you know, from his family. And he played me all these songs. He's never been, maybe one band, but he sat there and sang and played me these songs. And I was just like, oh my God, who is this guy? Like he's, some people just, 
I think there's like outliers in the art in the artistic world where they just they're very realized from the get go. You know, they just have something right away that's really compelling. You know, and he he certainly was one of those guys. I mean, and, and he can do it on any instrument. You know, I love the way he plays drums. I love the way he plays guitar, keys. He kind of just he's super musical guy and I've, I've really grown a lot getting to play with him specifically you know well i gotta tell you man it not only was, is it great to chat with you but it was really fun to watch you work the other night that was really cool oh well, thank you thank you that was an interesting show i was a little i was nervous playing the utah because i played there before with a dub collective and it's such a funky spot you know yeah it can be, you never know what's going to happen there. You know, it's in a funny part of town and, you know, it's gotten, not that it was ever bad, but it's, it's gotten better. I, I remember the bartender used to do sound and it was like, it was so really bare bones, you know, and sometimes the shows were fun. Sometimes they weren't depending on the crowd and the vibe. But, uh, I think in the case of that, that night was really fun because Alana is so good and her songs are so great. And I think she, she had some great musicians playing her stuff. You know, the band Derek and Derek and Sam were really happening on that show. It was really, it was easy to play. It was like surfing, going out and surfing on really, really fun head high left-handed waves with nobody out. Like you'd be hard pressed not to, not to sound good with a band like that. There's, they were so on point and her songs are sounding so good. She brings it. Yeah, it was, it was a great show and it was, it was, uh, it was something else. I thought it sounded fabulous. It was fun. It was super fun. I was like, again, a little nervous, you know, like club shows and not having a lot of time to rehearse or practice. She lives in, in, in Florida and I would, you know, it's, it's really fun filling in or whoever plays with her, but, you know, having not a lot of time to rehearse, maybe in a day, and songs that are not like, whoa, just kind of feel feel this one out, guys. It's not like that at all. There's five bars of this and a stop there, and this changes meter and feel, and it's definitely like uh, thing you have to stay on your toes with those songs, you know, but... I thought I was really happy it came off nicely and the sound was good. The sound people knew what they were doing and the crowd was 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 with her. So that that helped a lot, you know. Yeah, and I I noticed that you never took your eyes off of her. You didn't look at the bass player or the guitar player, but you you watched her the whole time. Is that was that cuz you were looking for a tell me why. Well, okay, if you're backing a singer songwriter, I learned specifically that they have a cadence when they sing. Um, and then when they strum, if they're, especially if they're playing guitar and singing, there's two things that figure out, figure in one thing is the cadence of their voice. Just what you said, like the rhythmic thing that I think a drummer, well, I'm not telling anyone else how to drum, but for me, I, I, I think it's imperative for me to catch what it is they're saying. Cause I've had the privilege of backing, some really great artists, you know, and, and the times where I was asleep back there or I was just thinking about drum parts were not when I was best serving those people. The times where I could get out of myself, watch the way they were strumming, watch how they were singing, watch how loud they were singing. Are they moving right? Is this making a move right? 
could I back off a little bit? Could I play a little bit more? Where are they going to go with this? You know, the best thing is just to, especially if there's a vocalist who's strumming an acoustic guitar and trying to, you know, tell stories to an audience, can I zero in on that and compliment what they're doing? You know, that's, that's my job as I see it. Well, it was a hell of a show, man. And, uh, you're a very special musician. I really enjoyed uh, watching you play. It was really cool. I'm honored. I'm honored, man. And I, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time, man, to uh, oh, chat dude. with me. Of course. Of course. I love your podcast. And, you know, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing all of them. Like the, the names that came across there were, were – I saw some names that were really important to me and, and, and really cool, well curated. So it means a lot that you asked me to be on it. I'm glad that you caught like one of the smaller shows and and that I played and and that's I don't know means a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, and and come back on the show, man. It'd be fun to have you back. Anytime, dude. Thank you so much. really fun. Adam Topol, what a great guy. I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did too. My God, I forgot to mention he played with Eddie Vedder. How did I forget that? Well, I did. But now I'm remembering he did play with Eddie Vedder. And I'm sure other great people too that I'm forgetting, but at least I got the Vedder in there. Uh, AdamTopol.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with Adam. Also visit him at AdamTopol.Bandcamp.com. Go buy some of Adam's music it's all amazing. Dub City Collective, the solo albums, I love it all, and you will too. AdamTopel.Bandcamp.com. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast. I almost said Twitter, but I'm, uh, I'm slowly evolving away from that hellhole. <laughs> I'm still on there, but mostly just... Uh, to see when the whole thing is going to cave in, I don't think much longer. I feel ashamed still being on there. So forget that I'm on there. Forget I mentioned this. Just find me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review. And tell all your friends. Tell people that aren't even your friends yet. Tell people who you're thinking that you'd like to be friends with. Maybe it's a good icebreaker. How about that? Let's close the show with a longer listen to Daydream Man from Adam's solo album, Quando. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Dreams of things to tap on the page. The stories to create for the stage And memories and images passing through by by Inventions that will change the world The treasure chest of dads and girls I see it all so clearly in my reverie 
can't change the path of a daydream man. 